0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a surgeon discusses the appendix and why some experts are rethinking whether the organ should
1: be removed. People who do have their appendix as less li- are less likely to develop certain colonic infections.
0: A professor who specializes in environmental and forest biology talks about ticks and tick borne diseases
2: and why we should care even in the colder months. What's special about the Asian longhorn tick is that. We have yet to find a male species of this tick in the continental United States.
0: And a registered dietitian nutritionist explains what's important to know about eating during each stage of life.
3: Gatted sugars is a, is a concept for everyone. We all need to look at it because I think it can be easily get into our diet without us thinking sometimes.
0: All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn why we should still be aware of ticks and tick-borne diseases, even in the colder months. Then, we'll hear about good eating habits for every stage of life. But first, we'll find out why some experts are questioning whether the appendix should be removed. The appendix is a pouch near where the large and small intestines meet, and for centuries it's been seen as a useless organ. Doctors would remove it if it became infected. In recent years, though, doctors are rethinking the role of the appendix, and they may not be so quick to remove it. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about the appendix and appendectomies is Dr. Mustafa Hassan. He's an associate professor of surgery at Upstate who specializes in acute care surgery. He's taken care of many patients with ap- appendicitis, and he's agreed to talk about it. So thank you, Dr. Hassan.
1: Thank you, Amber. Thanks for hosting me and bringing this subject to the light.
0: So tell us about the appendix. What it, I know it's, uh, it's at the uh, junction of the large and small intestine, right? But why is it there? What does it do?
1: Well, I think you pretty much uh, defined the appendix when you, when you started your introduction. It is what you said it is. Uh, however, it's not a useless organ as uh, thought in the past. Um, we think there is a use for the appendix. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. And um, we have, it's been published, and we have also noticed that people who do have their appendix are less likely to develop certain colonic infections. And that has been established in a lot of research that people who do have their appendix are less likely to do that. And those who do not have it are likely to develop some of the colonic uh, infectious uh, diseases.
0: So what are colonic diseases? What do you mean by that?
1: I mean, in that the category I'm talking about is infections in the colon, like colitis. We call it colitis. Oh, okay. Uh, there's a specific entity uh, known as C. diff colitis, which is common in hospitalized patients. We see it every now and then, and it can be a devastating illness. The appendix seems to have an immunological function. It secretes some sort of antibiotics that protects us against some of those infections it's not it's still not clearly understood but it's becoming a fact
0: interesting so how long has this sort of thinking been churning how long have people been
1: well it's been uh, over the last decade or so we, we're getting to understand it a little more and we're doing less uh, appendectomies unless it's done for a good reason
0: okay if unless it's necessary or it's ruptured or something correct um, how has the operation changed over the years? Do, is it simply uh, opening a person's belly and finding
2: the well, organ? And-
1: the, the operation has definitely uh, changed over the years, and it changed in the United States as of today. Uh, it's, it's not done the same uh, in the United States like in other countries. Um, I can tell you that most of the appendectomies we do, if not all of them, are done laparoscopically. Well, if you go to even other industrialized countries in Europe, they're still doing an open technique. In the 1800s, appendectomies were starting to become common, and it was done without anesthesia, which means the patient would get restrained and have an incision, and they take the appendix out. And you can imagine the devastation uh, and the pain and suffering that people would go through.
0: Wow. Was that, did that predate anesthesia, or it why did. would they do? Appendectomies
1: okay. predated anesthesia.
0: So yeah. that's why they had to do, yes. wow. yeah
1: they had no choice. Yeah.
0: And so when you say laparoscopically, that's um, without a big major incision, but that's the small, um, a small cut that in, correct, you use uh, so
1: tools to... In, in surgery, there's no one-size-fits-all, and there's no one modality that fits everybody. Uh, but the most commonly done procedure is laparoscopic appendectomy, where you make three little holes. Each is about... Uh, a centimeter or half a centimeter uh, in its uh, size, and put the camera in and two instruments, and we are able to take the appendix out. The commonly done procedure all over the world, including in Europe and other industrialized country, is an incision at the lo- right lower part of the abdomen. And it's about an inch, an inch and a half, depending on the difficulty of the case.
0: Okay. How big is the appendix?
1: Well, um, again, there is no one size for the appendix. Um, it can be as, as short as 2 centimeters in, in length, and can extend up to 15, and sometimes it's really, really a very long organ sometimes. So again, there's no one-size-fits-all in surgery. Uh, its thickness for a normal appendix should not exceed 6 millimeters, which is a little bit over half a centimeter. That's a normal appendix. Above that is usually the in, in inflamed appendix.
0: So uh, before you go in, if you have to remove an appendix, do you are, are you able to know how big it's going to be before you get there? Or?
1: That's an excellent uh, question, because traditionally, people did not get any investigations. People would go to the hospital with a pain in the right lower part of the abdomen, and they would get subjected to an appendectomy. Sometimes, and, and a lot of times, the appendix you appear to be normal uh, after the appendectomy is done. We tend to do more studies um, prior to the appendectomy, unless we're like 100% sure that this is the diagnosis. So we do ultrasounds sometimes. And the ultrasound is a non-invasive test. Uh, and you can look and you can see an inflamed appendix or a, an appendix on the right lower part of the abdomen. But most commonly, we do a CT scan, a CAT scan. And these are excellent studies, but they expose the patients to radiation to some extent, just like an x-ray. But they are extremely detailed, and they can show us everything. So that's why, and we use a lot of them here at Upstate. That's why we do not remove normal appendix anymore. And uh, we tend to operate on, on the people who actually will need the operation.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with surgeon uh, Dr. Mustafa Hassan, who specializes in trauma and critical care and hernia and abdominal wall surgery. And we're talking about the appendix. Um, can you tell me what causes appendicitis?
1: Well, there are many theories, but the most simple one is the appendix does have a lumen in it.
0: A lumen is sort of the A lumen, center? which means a,
1: a cavity, a very a cavity. narrow, long cavity. It's just like a tube, basically. And that cavity can get obstructed by what we call a fecolith, which is basically, basically uh, a small piece of feces. And once it gets obstructed, bacteria will multiply inside that closed lumen something we call closed loop obstruction. If you trap some bacteria uh, with no outlet, they'll just multiply and cause, until they get to a point where they stretch and distend that appendix producing the infection and sometimes rupture if untreated.
0: So how would a person know that this is happening inside them?
1: Um, the, the symptoms associated with appendicitis are usually pain. People don't necessarily have pain as a first thing. In the right lower part of the abdomen they can get a little uh, anorexic which we call um, they feel unwell and they lose their appetite and sometimes they feel a little nauseated and then they start having pain that's the traditional presentation they start having pain around the belly button which eventually the pain moves to the right lower part of the abdomen that's the traditional Presentation.
0: And is that over a course of hours or days? Or? It
1: really differs from one person to another. And it's kind of hard to tell because people will uh, have different pain thresholds and they will appear in the emergency room at different times. But it can happen over 24 hours.
0: Is there um, a person, an age, or a gender that's more prone to appendicitis than another?
1: Well, um, traditionally, appendix was a disease of younger people and teenagers. Uh, yet it's still most commonly seen in younger people, people below uh, 40 years of age. But the reality is we see people with appendicitis. We have, of all ages, we have recently removed an appendix from a 95-year-old gentleman uh, in the hospital here, which is uh, unusual. But you can see it in all age groups.
0: Is it um, an emergency? Or how do you know if it's an emergency?
1: Well, that's also a great question. Um People have different presentations. It can be an emergency. It can be an urgency, which is not a little less than an emergency. Or sometimes we do not have to operate on an appendix at all. So some people, sh- depending on how the patient shows up in the emergency room, people show up very sick, then they need to be resuscitated, given antibiotics, and sometimes rush to the operating room. Others can wait and be done urgently, and others can should not have an operation at all like, in spite of the fact that they have a sick appendix.
0: How do you make them better without surgery then? Does this ever fix itself or go away on its own? Or?
1: Well, um, this is also a subject of controversy, uh, has always been controversial. However, if we uh, dissect it a little further, uh, there is no uh, confusion about it. Some people will uh, present with um, an inflamed appendix and even ruptured appendix. However, the organs around the appendix, the small intestines and the large intestines, will will get stuck to it and will seal down that inflammation. In this situation, actually, an operation may not be safe because you go in, you have to mobilize or, or we have to move those organs away from the appendix and that's not safe. They're very inflamed and they often tear. So we have found that when the infection is localized which means contained in the right lower part of the abdomen and it's severe enough. We found that when we give antibiotics, people get better without the operation. If we operate, they may have more complications. So in this specific situation, we opt to give antibiotics and watch people in the hospital for a couple of days, send them home on antibiotics and see them again later.
0: In what you just described, it sounds like the body's sort of healing itself or trying to and the antibiotics help it. Absolutely, Alone.
1: but the antibiotics are just fundamental to that uh, part because they can get still sicker and sicker without the antibiotics. We've never tried this without antibiotics, so, and I don't think uh, anybody's willing to do that. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: do you ever have to operate in an anticipation of a rupture, like try to go in and remove it before it ruptures?
1: Absolutely, and that's the, basically the most common uh, the patients present to the emergency room with acute appendicitis and pain, and we take them to the operating room. I wouldn't say emergently, but urgently, which means within hours. We take them, and we do a laparoscopic appendectomy, which means removing the appendix laparoscopically so that it doesn't rupture.
0: Okay. What well, can you tell us about a recent study on what to do about uncomplicated Appendicitis. I think it was in JAMA, Journal of Amer- American Medical Association Surgery Journal.
1: Correct. Well, the study is actually uh, very interesting. It's done in Finland. So uh, the presentation of the patient, the way they were treated, is a little different from what we do here. Also, the access to healthcare is properly different. So we don't do exactly the same thing. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the study. The study uh, is well-conducted. It's a randomized, controlled study, which means it's not a study of something that happens. It's, it's uh, done in advance. Um, so they uh, split patients into two categories. Some of them had, all of them had uncomplicated appendicitis, which means it's not ruptured. It's not stuck to other organs. It's just a simple appendicitis that we usually, traditionally, would take the appendix out. Treated almost half those patients with antibiotics, the other half with an operation, and they concluded that the patients who did not have the operation, only had antibiotics, um, did well, and they did not require an appendectomy. Actually, only 60% did not require an appendectomy within five years, which means 39%, let's say 40% of the patients still required an appendectomy In five years so it's almost a 50 50 chance of not acquiring surgery so I when I look at that study myself I think if I have appendicitis I want my appendix out because I have a 50 50 chance in five years of not having the operation which means I have 50 percent chance of having the operation and if you extend the study to ten more years maybe more people will need the operation so if I do have acute appendicitis and I'm healthy enough to have an operation, I have no other reasons not to have an operation, I'm not on a blood thinner, I'm not a sick person, I would get the operation.
0: So is that how you counsel um, patients that you see in your practice?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, th- this is a decision, is no one size fits all, a decision between the treating physician as well as the patient, based on an informed, uh, it's an informed uh, relationship about the possibilities and potential risks and the benefits and the risks of surgery as well.
0: Because if you remove the appendix, that guarantees they won't have appendicitis again, right?
1: Correct. Now, in the Finnish study, uh, people had some complications from surgery. Surgery was predominantly done using the open technique, so they had some hernias in the incision, wound infections. We don't do that in the United States. We do laparoscopic appendectomies to the most part, so those complications really do not apply to our patient population as well.
0: Um, and you mentioned laparoscopically, uh, that um, lends itself to a, a smooth recovery, too, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Patients usually go home, some young, healthy people go home the same day, others will go home the next morning for an uncomplicated acute appendicitis after surgery.
0: Well, long term, um, are there any effects to having uh, not having a, an appendix? Are there is there a lasting effect?
1: Again, you know, there are studies that says, that say that the appendix has an immunological function and if you remove it, you will be more prone to colitis, C. diff colitis, which are some of the infections that can happen in the coroner. Um So that's, you know, you know that's, that's as far as we know.
0: Something to consider then. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. You're,
1: welcome. You're welcome.
0: My guest has been Associate Professor of Surgery, Dr. Mustafa Hassan. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, ticks and tick borne diseases on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a warning about the Asian longhorned tick and its ability to cause massive infestations because this tick is spreading across parts of the United States at a time when diseases spread by ticks, mosquito, and flea bites are on the rise. So we invited a tick expert to explain what's happening. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Brian Ladette, an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental and Forest Biology at SUNY ESF, who also holds a position in upstate's Department of Microbiology and Immunology. Welcome, Dr. Ladette. Hey, thanks for having me, Amber. So, in central New York, we're used to hearing about deer ticks and Lyme disease, but this is something different. So, please tell us about it.
2: Sure. Uh, the Asian longhorn tick has made its presence known now on the east coast um, and it's getting a lot of media attention this tick's very interesting it's an invasion um, from southeast asia where a lot of invasive organisms come from Um, and what's really interesting about like you said is it causes these massive infestations Um, and it causes these massive infestations very interestingly they parasitize usually cattle they're they're really big cattle pest Um, and what's special about the asian longhorn tick is that we have yet to find a male species of this tick in the continental United States. Really? Yes. Yeah, so this tick actually can have babies. Um, the female does not need to mate to have babies. So the female is what we call parthenogenic and can lay up to 3,000 eggs without ever encountering a male. Now, these eggs all turn out to be female and they last and last and last until a male comes along and the male comes in, and then we start seeing males in a population. So as of now, we've only found females in the United States. Um, But however, these ticks, they parasitize an animal, drop off, lay thousands of eggs, and then keep feeding on that on those animals.
0: And you said they're uh, what they're attracted to cattle. Cattle so is the biggest pest. Dairy farms would need to be concerned yes, about this. Yes, and maybe?
2: that's a concern. You know, the, the the tick itself does cause some human diseases in in, in Southeast Asia. Um, a disease called severe fever and thrombocytopenia syndrome. It's not been detected in the United States yet. It is a viral infection, but it the tick also carries a bacteria protozoal infection called teleriosis that can infect cattle and it does decrease egg, uh, milk production in the cattle. So it's a concern to, to cattle farmers.
0: Huh? Now I have to ask, does it have long horns on it? Is that why it's called?
2: No, it doesn't. Um, it, I actually don't know why it's called longhorn, except maybe that it feeds on cattle and they found it on longhorn cattle. Um, so they get a lot of these common names um, um, from, from where they find the, 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 the tick itself.
0: So, and and there's no diseases in humans found in the U.S. from these ticks yet. Correct. At least. Um, how did they turn up in New York? How did they get here from Asia?
2: That's a good question. Um, they turned up in, well, actually New Jersey, I believe, is where they first uh, discovered it on a, on a, on a sheep. Um, and it was a large infestation. But then they started looking in the records and they found, well, this tick's been around the United States a while. The problem is it looks like another tick species that we commonly would not commonly see but unless you're a morphological expert you really can't distinguish them apart so people were probably seeing these ticks but just saying oh they're this species that's uncommon to pick up in the united states but we do see them and then somebody found oh no this is actually a new species um they probably came over on on cattle or or some type of, of animal um just like most invasives come over on
0: well, can we talk about sort of ticks in general? Sure. Are there anything uh, that Asian longhorn ticks have in common with like
2: deer ticks? Not really. Um, they really are uh, almost single host specific. They'll, they'll infest a sheep, drop off and keep reinfesting that sheep and they complete their life cycle on the sheep. Whereas the deer tick, Ixodes scapularis, uses the smaller mammals in the immature life stages and then uses deer at, at the adult life stage.
0: Huh. Interesting. How many types of ticks are there?
2: There are eighty species of ticks in the United States, and I believe around two hundred and eighty worldwide. Okay. Commonly in the United States, we only encounter about four, so you'll only see about four on humans. The rest of them live on animals, and we really never encounter them.
0: Interesting. Do how do ticks? Where do they fall in the insect world? Are they low on the totem pole, or are they they're do they get not, along with other insects? Right. What?
2: They're actually not insects. Oh, they're, they're not arachnids. Insects? So they're, oh. they're closely related to spiders and mites. Oh, really? So if you study entomology, you really won't even study ticks because entomology is a study of insects, and ticks are arachnids. So tick experts are arachnologists. So
0: they're more like spiders.
2: Like spiders and, and mites. They're actually a, a subfamily of mite.
0: All right. well let's talk about what the life cycle you mentioned that is it it's different for different types of ticks
2: yes some ticks um have we call them three host two host or one host life cycle the deer tick is a three host meaning that it feeds on us when it hatches from an egg as a larval form it feeds on a small mammal and then drops off molts into a nymph feeds on another small mammal drops off Molts into an adult and then feeds on a larger mammal and then drops off and the females lay eggs It feeds on three different hosts. The majority of its life is actually in the environment and off host on the other end of the spectrum There's the one host tick that when the eggs are laid the larvae get onto the host and never drop off until the female is Engorged and then lays eggs. So it'll live its life on the host. So once infested you can't get rid of it
0: How long would they live
2: it depends? Um on environmental conditions because a lot of development is influenced by the environment uh, heat um, sun photo period weather um, some ticks have uh, life uh, life cycles as quick as like, six months um, we can get them pretty quick in the lab to go through the life cycle some as long as three years
0: well here in central new york i think we feel like when it snows that all the ticks are killed but that's not true?
2: That's not true. Um, the ticks go into hiding. Um, I call them to go in the little tick igloos. When you have a nice snow layer, the ticks are underneath the uh, the detritus layer of the forest. So decaying leaf matter. It's very warm. It's moist. The little igloo ice above is keeping them very nice habitat. And then when the snow melts, the ticks are ready to come out and, and become active. Do they hibernate? They don't hibernate. Uh, the most common form uh, or life cycle, life stage of the tick overwintering is the fed adult female. So it's a female that's taken a blood meal on a deer in the fall, has fed off, and it's the size of a grape. And it sits there and waits and waits and waits overwinters. winters. It's, it's, it goes into diapause. And then once the snow melts, it lays its eggs, and the eggs hatch.
0: So people who are out um, snowshoeing in the woods in the winter, do they need to be checking for ticks?
2: If there's snow covering the ground, no, there's, there's really no need. However, if we do have a melt and there's patches of, of earth and it's a warmer day, if it's really cold and windy, you no, know, ticks are not going to be out questing and climbing. But if it's a warmer day and some sun is shining through and you see some ground, yes, you, you can encounter the rare tick in those situations.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Brian Ladette. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental and Forest Biology at SUNY ESF, and he also holds a position in Upstate's Department of Microbiology and Immunology. So, I wanted to ask you if you can tell me what's happening with Moose in uh, New York and Canada, and and ticks.
2: Sure. So the mo- moose are interesting. They're they're a, l- a large organism that are of conservation concern, um, and they do have a tick called uh, the winter tick, uh, Dermacentor albipictus. Um, and this tick is is a larger tick than what we see the, the deer tick. And the the tick likes to feed on the moose. And once it gets on the moose, it can cause these very large infestations. And with all the blood they're taking, it can really emaciate or just drain the moose of their blood. And it creates these these moose that just look very sick, ghostly. We call them ghost moose. So if you see them, they are almost like an apparition of themselves because they're so sick. And it can actually decimate a, 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 a moose and kill the moose. So it's so a concern for conservationists.
0: You said the tick is larger than... The deer tick is really small, like sure. a poppy seed or something, right?
2: Well, the adults... Uh, a big... About the size of an eraser, the adults. Okay. The nymphs are about a poppy seed. Um, the the dermocenter ticks are a little larger. You will find them um, I, There is a dermis center tick that feeds on, on humans, the the dog tick, the American dog tick um, and it's, it's about eh, a, a 1.5 times the size of the, uh, of the uh, Black-legged tick. So it takes a little larger of a blood meal
0: but the ticks that are killing moose or emaciating them, they take many of them or on them, right? Yeah, thousands and
2: thousands um, to take that amount of blood.
0: Wow. Well, um, let me segue back to ha- when a person um, finds a tick on them, what, what, do they, what do you advise them to do about it?
2: I always advise uh, folks that find ticks because I find ticks on myself. I, I live in Syracuse or in Fayetteville. Um, and when I find a tick on myself, I will take that tick off. Um, I will save that tick. I will put it in a Ziploc bag. I will not crush it. I will not flush it down the toilet. I will not burn it with a match. Um, I will take it in a Ziploc bag, tie it up, and throw it in my freezer to kill it. Um, because if I do develop symptoms like flu-like illness that most tick-borne diseases cause initial, so a week later, I can take that tick with me to the doctor and be like, Doc, look, I've, I found this tick on me. Um, I'm now sick with flu-like symptoms in the summer. I think it may be a tick-borne illness. And that helps the doctor with some differentials when they're diagnosing a, a person.
0: So to take it off, do you, do you need tweezers to remove it?
2: Sure. I use tweezers, just fine tip tweezers. And I just grab right at the base of the skin and just pull straight up. No turning, no, no quick action, just a straight pull off. And, and it'll, they'll usually detach.
0: Now, can you tell when you're removing a tick, can you tell whether it has actually bit the person
2: if it's attached, then it's it's bit. Um, there are certain signs that we can look at as experts to, to, to estimate how long it has been attached, um, but that does take an, an expert, uh, usually a tick expert, and there's not a lot of us.
0: Now, you mentioned there's um, like four ticks in the United States that can transmit diseases to humans.
2: Well, there are four we, we the, readily we encounter. Okay. Right. And on the East Coast, there are different ones on the West Coast, um, but there are four we, we readily encounter on the East Coast, so um, that can transmit disease.
0: So we've heard about Lyme disease here, sure. but what else is
2: out there? There's a lot. The, the tick that transmits Lyme disease can transmit seven different pathogens. Um, so we've, we're hearing about babesiosis, which is spreading from the Hudson Valley, anaplasmosis, um, ehrlichiosis is spread by a different tick. Um, there is a, a, a type of ehrlichiosis that is spread by the black-legged tick that's being impl- implicated in human disease. Viruses like Powassan virus, which, is, which has been in the, in the, the news recently, um, there's red meat allergy, which is a, uh, a an allergy you get, uh, or p- folks have gotten after being bitten by the Lone Star tick, they become allergic to any red meat, which would be- for, Forever? Ter- yes. It would be terrible. It's like an anaphylactic wow. reaction, like a peanut allergy. Wow. But it's because of a, a salivary protein in the tick, um, that people develop this allergy to red meat.
0: Wow. I had not heard about that.
2: Wow. Uh, some, something new almost every year. There's bourbon virus. There's, there's stuff coming out all the time.
0: Well, that CDC warning mentioned that uh, the number of diseases spread by ticks, mosquitoes, and flea bites is on the rise. What? Well- why is that
2: well it's it's two factors um one is that we're seeing the spread of the tick into new areas so um you know humans are encountering ticks more often um now ticks are increasing in numbers um the other thing is we're getting a lot better at diagnosing and recognizing illness our science is getting better um so we're able to um when we, we think about the recent outbreaks of zika virus that it's a flavivirus we've because of these large outbreaks um Pandemics. We've Our diagnostic tests are just better and we're able to pick up very similar viruses in humans that are related. So that's kind of a, a science is really opening the world up to how many viruses or bacteria actually in these ticks. And there is a lot.
0: Sounds like it. Now, what about um, climate? And, and we've heard talk of climate change. Is that having an impact on the and- it is
2: indeed um so ticks develop remember i said they, they live most of their life off the host and they go through developmental stages and i i, I compare it to upstate new york you're not going to have an orange tree in your backyard because we don't have the right temperatures to support the development of that tree and those citrus fruit same thing with the tick they get to a certain area and they need a certain amount of heat certain amount of light heating degree days growing degree days if you're a, a, a gardener to get through their developmental cycle. Some areas don't get that. Some areas are on the verge. As climate change happens, those areas on the verge will become more, more environmentally friendly to those ticks, and they'll get through their developmental cycle, and we'll be growing ticks and citrus in our backyard.
0: Wow. Well, let me ask you about vaccines. Um, there's a vaccine for Lyme disease for canines, for dogs, Um but there's not one for humans yet?
2: There there was one for humans in the early 2000s that was pulled for the market for um, uh, various reasons. Um, there is, uh, There are vaccines on the verge um, being developed um, and in phase, I believe, two trials. So they're ro- rolling out into human populations probably 10 years away if everything goes as, as, as planned. Um, but, but they are being developed and people are actively working for those.
0: That's just for Lyme, but all of the other... Things that you mentioned are: Is there work being done for vaccines?
2: Not really. Um, there is a, a, a tick vaccine for tick-borne encephalitis virus, but we don't have that in the United States. It's more of a, a, a Russian, a, a, a Asian continent problem. Interesting. now there is some work being done for anti-tick vaccines, whereas uh, they try to vaccinate you against the tick from biting or, or feeding on you. So, once a, t- a tick feeds on you, your immune response actually. Your, Uh, response to the tick feeding and not the actual pathogen so that would be a a, a silver bullet you would you could you could keep the tick from feeding and then you wouldn't have transmission you wouldn't
0: even have to deal with it
2: of the majority of agents now some agents transmit much faster 15 30 seconds so obviously the the vaccine wouldn't work that quick but but um the majority of, of of pathogens need some time to transmit
0: so an anti-tick vaccine, so to speak, that would be like a, a bug spray kind of thing or something? No, that... it would
2: be a shot you got that, oh. that made your immune system um, hyperactive to certain things in, in the tick, whether it be proteins in the salivary glands or proteins that it excretes upon early feeding.
0: So that might be for someone who's out like yourself, who's sure. in that, uh, in forests or right. whatever. So, well, interesting. Thank you so much for for being here, my guest has been Assistant Professor Brian Ledette from SUNY ESF. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next, on Upstate's HealthLink On Air, what you need to know about healthy eating for every stage of life. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The way we eat or should eat changes over time as our bodies age. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin. We're going to look at healthy dietary habits starting from birth and going into the golden ages. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. What are the issues you hear about in terms of nutrition for kids?
3: Well, with kids, I think it's in terms of sometimes toddlers go through different stages. Kids go through picky eating stages, food jags, as as they call them, in terms of it, where parents get concerned in terms of it. And, you know, what, what are you going to do if your kid only will eat one certain food in terms of it? And I think that's a normal thing with, you know, childhood and what happens. It's uh, kind of that, this is what I like to do. So parents get concerned I think the one thing you can always do is the more a better role model you are for kids the better it's going to be as I was doing this talk, I thought of my mom and I love spinach and I always thought she loved spinach so I got to be a grown-up and she said to me, I hate spinach. And I thought, oh, okay, but I love spinach. So I think that's an important thing because sometimes when I talk to people, they're like, oh, I never had vegetables in my life and I don't like vegetables. So I think the more we show our kids and it's not to say you force a food on a child, it's just keep introducing a thing. They're going to make their own preferences just like you do as an adult but as a kid, I think we need to offer those foods to kids and show them and I also think it's important with um, kids to get them excited about food I think there's a lot more in schools that are doing as far as nutrition education and I think that's a thing get them involved you know have them try a, a star fruit that they've never done and show them how to cut it and what it looks like and taste it those kinds of things because I think that's the thing it's helpful for the kids to know about good nutrition. And sometimes I think what kids can do is when we teach them in schools, they can bring things back to their parents also. So did your mom eat spinach? She and, ate spinach, and, and I never knew it until I was older that she hated <laughs> spinach, but I thought it was so cool of her. Wow. <laughs> and my son loves spinach. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I know um, added sugar
0: is an issue that comes up. At what point is it, I don't know, what age should a should a child or, or should they ever um, get I don't know, drink that has added sugar in it?
3: Well, I think we need to look at those choices in terms of are you offering your child a fruit punch, a fruit beverage, a fruit drink, or a fruit juice or a fruit, all right? When you get into punches, beverages, drinks, we know that that's where the added sugar component comes in. Um, are we offering smaller glasses of fruit juice and then maybe water? What are we looking at in terms of good water intake? So I think added sugars is a, is a concept for everyone. We all need to look at it because I think it can be easily get into our diet without us thinking sometimes. Um, So I think for kids, yes, look at what you're offering your kids as far as beverages. What are your snack choices for your kids? Are you offering, you know, some fruit and maybe they're not ready for um, an apple yet, but they could eat maybe some chopped pineapple or canned pineapple packed in its own own juice, which can be a great choice as far as snack foods. I remember growing up, water and milk were sort of
0: that the was key. it, kind of.
3: Right, yeah. I think we grew up, if you got a soda, it was like a yes. treat. Big treat. Like you had to go to the movies and get a soda. <laughs> so, what's the best breakfast for kids? What do you recommend? I recommend what kids are going to like because I think that's an important thing. I think breakfast is a very important meal. Um, Maybe it's going to be eggs. Maybe it's going to be peanut butter. Maybe it's going to be oatmeal. Maybe it'll be a cereal. But again, that's where we get into the added concept. What kind of cereal might be a healthier choice for your child instead of something packed with a lot of sugar? Um, Maybe we can make it more fun and we can put our own bananas in it and, and a few raisins, those kinds of things. Maybe we can make it fun and put... On our peanut butter on toast, we can put some bananas and raisins and make a smiley face. And we're getting, again, more more variety in those kinds of things. So it really depends on those preferences and what your child likes. And I know with today's age, it's all about we've got to have something quick. Um, So sometimes it's those kinds of things and saying, well, I can make up um, a breakfast burrito and I'll make a bunch of them on the weekends and I have them ready. So if I'm ready for a pressure and I got to go, boom, microwave. So... You mentioned speed, you know, and eating quickly. Is grazing,
0: is that, I mean, that's kind of popular with younger kids. Is that a healthy way it to eat? It can
3: be if you're aware of what they're doing, I think, because I think with kids they that's kind of their style because they're so active and, and busy. But I think we do have to be aware of what, what are we offering them for those grazing things, you know, what are our choices in terms of it. And, again, looking at it, if they're grazing too much, then are they not sitting down and eating a meal? And are we letting the grazing become the majority of their caloric intake? Um, I think you have to be careful with grazing because I think for sometimes we do it as adults and people it's that mindless eating we've talked about so many times like I have no idea but I wow that pack of crackers is gone and I didn't know I ate it. So I think it can help with kids because we know kids need more calories you know they're burning things they they need those carbs proteins fats they need those kinds of things but we've got to be careful to what extent we're not monitoring and watching it.
0: Well, is it safe to let kids sort of just eat until they're full, or does a parent need to be uh, mindful of the caloric intake?
3: Um, I think it's probably more important for to you to be aware of your child's um, their appetite and how they how are they full and feeling satisfied. I I always think it's important because when we have kids and we think about kids, kids go to a point and they can and, and pediatricians talk about this sometimes. Like your child might eat one day, you know, three days they might eat. The house. And then the next day they're okay. They kind of have that level in terms of their body kind of helps them figure that out. And I think that's something we lose as we get older. So I, th- I don't want parents to say, oh, you have to eat at 12. Maybe a kid's not hungry at 12, but maybe they had a snack, but it was a good snack. But I, I do think you kind of have to monitor that because you need to look at what you're offering them and what is happening. So I think it's more in terms of the whole, are they getting fruits, vegetables, a little bit of protein, maybe not so much zero in on calories for kids. If there's a weight issue, maybe we need to look at portions. That's a thing in terms of it. But I think letting kids listen to what their appetite, I think that's an important thing for adults we need to, are we really hungry.
0: Now, in the teen years when parents start sort of losing control over what their kids eat, what dietary issues do you see arising?
3: Well, with kids, um, there could be things in terms of they want to go vegetarian. They might want to go vegan. Um, they want might want to get towards low-carb if that's a new fad. And, again, you have to figure out why if it's a choice and it's a vegetarian – I think then they need to do research with their children and, and look at what's what are good choices for a vegetarian. What might you be missing if you go vegetarian or if you go vegan in terms of it? Um, with teens, you also want to look at they need that calcium. I think it's just so important with teens in terms of that's when they can get that deposit of that calcium we call it like the, the bone bank in terms of it that is so important and are they changing that because are they concerned about their weight and so are they drinking a diet soda instead of having you know girls having a glass of milk or yogurt how are they changing to kind of come into their own in terms of you know what are they going against you for um and why you know if it's weight well okay you could still have a glass of skim milk for 80 calories and you're going to get a lot of bang of nutrition for that so I think those are some of the key things. What's changing within your child's life and why? Is it weight? Is it sports? What's happening in terms of it? Well, segueing into kind of young adulthood, um, young
0: people seem to be uh, the drive, driving movement behind this uh, locally sourced food and mm-hmm. eating. Um, I wonder, does that impact, does it have any impact
3: on nutrition? I, th- I think a great impact because if you're going to the farmer's market, you're gonna meet that farmer, you're gonna know what they do. you're gonna you're gonna be able to talk to them, you're gonna be able to find out about their practices. And when I go to the market, that market, they've been there since six o'clock in the morning and they brought it from their fields with them and you can talk. Um, And when we get it in the store, where did it come from? Has it been on a truck for, you know, 300 miles or 600 miles? Where is it coming from? So I think in terms of the availability and the good nutrient you can get it, I think it's great. I do think it kind of confuses people because people are so into that. Then people think, if I do not buy fresh, it is not good for me. And I think that's an important thing. You can buy frozen, and that's just the same, boom, from the field, frozen, good nutrients, retained in terms of it, you know, a lot of people don't like canned. Well, if you're concerned about sodium, you can rinse it. You can get rid of some of that extra thing. So don't. I love local and I support local, but I, I hate it when people say, yes, I bought all this great f- fresh fruits and vegetables and it sat in my drawer and then I wasted money. So if it's a time factor, if it's a kid's factor in terms of their games or those kind, think about where you can go. I love frozen vegetables. I think they're probably one of the best inventions, um, along with that microwave.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with registered dietitian, nutritionist Maureen Franklin, and we're talking about how nutritional needs change at different stages of life. So, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, um, adulthood,
3: what are some of the things that uh, they need to be mindful of
0: in terms of healthy eating?
3: Um, well, women of childbearing definitely need to be aware of if, if they are looking towards pregnancy. Um, adequate folic acid intake iron intake and as those years progress we need to look at is there anything happening in terms of your own medical condition Um, you know is your blood pressure rising are your blood sugars creeping up as does the doctor talk about pre-diabetes what is your calcium intake and as with anything what's your weight because we know that's a big factor in terms of it and what's changing within your lifestyle are you more busy with your kids so you're not planning as much and are you going you know we talked about added sugars and processed foods are you going more towards that because of a time frame um i think that's an important thing that people have to look at but their own medical things what's happening within you do you do you need to maybe make some changes in terms of the way you that may dictate some of what some of what those changes can be definitely now i see multivitamins that are made
0: specifically for men and for women so Mm -hmm. are the nutritional needs that different between men
3: and women they differ a little bit yeah um again um there's some different requirements in in terms of it so again you might see one uh, a little different in terms of one vitamin versus another um overall i think the thing what we're looking for we're still looking for calcium is important for men and for women i think we've always thought of it as just women but it's important for men that vitamin d is important for everybody in terms of it Um, iron changes as as with women with uh, menopause our needs decrease Um, can tend to have a little decrease in terms of that for men sometimes you'll see like men's vitamins without added iron those kinds of things so they changed a little bit but the key thing is I think as we age we probably tend we tend to need less calories because again we're not burning in our whole metabolic rate um, but we need those good nutrients so it's not changing just because we're not 20 anymore doesn't need mean we need those good vitamins and nutrients we probably just need a little less calories, um, but the nutrients within those slight variations.
0: Well, as people, as we get into senior years or retirement years, um, as people get older, they, they do seem to eat less. Is that they, because yes. they don't need as many calories? Well, or?
3: some can be, they might not, but also can be, um, they might have a decrease in terms of their taste buds. They might have a decrease in terms of their appetite, maybe due to medications. Um, isolation, I think, as people get older and they're not seeing people... No one really likes to cook for themselves. They don't like to cook for one meal. Finances become an issue. So I think that's an important thing. That can change your eating pattern. And again, with that, you can be susceptible to possibly nutritional deficiencies because of that. Um, and again, that's where we need to look at. We need adequate hydration. Get that water in. Get some good calcium. Get some protein in. Look at what you're doing. Um, you know, again, same as we talked in adulthood, your medical situation is going to be a little dependent on it too. So I don't think people necessarily eat less because they think they're supposed to. I think sometimes there's factors that contribute to them eating differently. So someone in their 70s still needs
0: protein, carbs, and fats. Fats. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, well, what about vitamins? Do vitamins end up um, helping with that? In terms of? Well, do vitamins, would that
3: help uh, make sure
0: someone gets the nutrients that they need? That could be
3: like a a kind of like a a check system in terms of if you have any doubts in terms of it. Um, Probably another topic, but again, you got to be careful in terms of not overdoing it in terms of vitamin supplementation. So, you know, years ago we used to say, oh, we don't need a vitamin. Then they said, oh, maybe it's a good idea to have just one kind of as a backup in terms of it. So, again, I think from an individual standpoint, you same thing you need to look at what you're doing are you low in calcium are you low in vitamin c um did your doctor tell you you're going towards osteo you know you're heading towards osteoporosis so that might require different takes on it maybe a supplement and those kinds of things but again something to talk with your doctor about so if preparing meals becomes more challenging or,
0: or maybe dental issues makes eating more difficult you know as you as you get older are there other nutritional options for older people to make sure that they ingest what they
3: need Oh, you mean like supplements and those kinds of things? Or shakes? Or shakes. Yeah, there are. um, They tend to be a costly thing sometimes. And again, I tend to promote if you can, if you're going towards soft things, I would rather someone look at, okay, what kind of soft things can I get that are still going to be good nutritionally? Like maybe it's going to be cottage cheese. Um, Maybe it's going to be, cream tuna fish which is my favorite and ages me totally um or it could be you know cream chicken over mashed potatoes um and maybe i can add a little you know green beans to that those kinds of things i my preference is always look at what you can do in terms of food first and um supplementations yes there's medical situations that we might need it for but i would my preference is for people to look at what they could do in terms of their food intake first
0: In young adulthood, uh, I'm thinking college students um, living on a tight budget, ramen noodles, macaroni and cheese from a box, are those good choices for someone nutritionally on a budget?
3: Um, well, let's say if they fit within your budget, they can work, but you probably could do other things to help maybe improve them from a nutritional standpoint. So, could you take ramen noodles and maybe have half of a package and then maybe add some vegetables, possibly that, or maybe some canned tuna or scramble up some eggs, maybe put a little salsa in them? So, I think they could serve as your base. There's kind of like they're your carb choices in terms of it, but don't make them that's your sole choice in terms of it how can you take those and improve them a little bit and i think by quick easy things like some of the canned products canned vegetables frozen vegetables you could easily make it a, you can make it a meal and a very economical meal wonderful well thank you so much for this overview thanks for my, having
0: me my guest has been registered dietitian nutritionist maureen franklin i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, *The Healing Muse*, with this week's selection.
4: Gloria Heffernan teaches at Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Her latest book is called *Some of Our Parts*, and it can be found at Finishing Line Press. In her poem *A Greening of Sorts*, she celebrates the slow but steady arrival of healing. It only appears to happen suddenly the voluptuous explosion of green leaves painting the hillside that April morning, when just a day earlier the trees looked like a child's drawing of stick figures. But it wasn't one sudden lavish brushstroke. The buildup was gradual. First, a dull red bud barely visible on the tip of the branch. And then, the hull of the bud broke away, and underneath, a pale green kernel ripened unnoticed for days. And still, it seemed the buds would never fill out into something resembling a maple leaf. Until that morning, when you looked out the kitchen window over the rim of your coffee cup, and there it was, evidence that spring had kept its promise. That's what it was like when the green and yellow capsule finally made its presence known. It only seemed sudden when I found myself speaking without choking back tears when I could drive the car without fearing a truck might be hidden in my blind spot, when I could watch the news without feeling I was swallowing poison. A month or so of imperceptible progress, a gradual balancing of serotonin, a slow surrender to the reality that depression is an illness, not a character defect, and in what seems like only a moment, the grip of winter loosens its hold on my throat.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, facts about stroke from a pair of stroke experts. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.